So this evening we're looking at uh, one and two kings in 20 minutes. And uh, as I was thinking about this, I thought there were some books that you have that have the wrong title, uh, don't you? So A Brief History of Time, not brief, okay? The Never Ending Story actually ends. There's a, there's a back cover to the book. And Train Spotting doesn't have so many trains in it. Uh, not a lot of people sort of study anoraks. That's not the sort of book that it is. They've got the wrong title. Kings, on the other hand, is pretty much what you what you see is what you get. Kings is the name, and kings are in the book. That's really what takes most of the bulk of the time uh, in the book of Kings. There's more to the book, as we'll see, but the story revolves around the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah and what happened to them. When the kings stop, the book stops. And like 1 and 2 Samuel, it's really just one book that we've split into two books to sort of help us get our heads around such a big, uh, long book. So let's dig in with kings. A big part of 1 and 2 kings are the kings. So if you want to know the kings uh, of Judah, here we go, uh, and uh, Israel, those are all the kings that you get uh, in 1 and 2 kings, all of them uh, through all the uh, ages. Now most of the time we get the name of the king, how long he reigns for, and how his reign went. That's the sort of pattern of what happens. We find out whether he did evil in the sight of the Lord, or whether he did good. Sometimes they're a mix, but more often than not, they're one or the other. And the book starts with David, uh, with the end of David, really just finishing off that story, and carries on into Solomon. Solomon is the first big king. He takes up a big chunk of the book, uh, one kings to start with. And Solomon, on the surface of things, looks great. If you remember that God had promised that one of the sons of David would reign forever, that he would build a house for his name, and would have God himself as his father. And under Solomon, that looks like it starts to happen. We reach really what is the high point of the Old Testament. It doesn't get any better than under Solomon. He builds the temple and the glory of God descends on the temple. The nations of the earth begin to be blessed by this king as people like the Queen of Sheba come in to hear his wisdom. And we have a king who, when he's asked by God what he wants to start with, asks for wisdom to lead God's people wisely. This really is as good as it gets. If you read through the rest of the kings, you really see that this is not the norm. The kingdom as well is as large as it will ever be under Solomon. And God gives him rest from his enemies at the start of his reign. And it sort of reminds us of that other high point in the Old Testament under Joshua, where the people have rest in the land. But Solomon, as part of the kingdom's growth, ends up with lots of wives. Uh, and the wives are from other nations, and ultimately it leads his heart astray. He is ultimately not the fulfilment of the son of David promised in 2 Samuel 7, and it all starts to fall apart from there. After Solomon, the kingdom splits into two kingdoms, which it will be for the rest of its time. Each one has its own king, and that's why we have the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. Uh, because Solomon finishes atrociously, and one king uh, tells us the story, the kingdom is split in two as a punishment on Solomon. And yet for the sake of David, it doesn't happen during Solomon's lifetime, but actually during the reign of his son, uh, Rehoboam. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, uh, ends up, half of his kingdom if you like, the northern kingdom ends up going to one of his servants, Jeroboam, or Ray and Jerry, as I used to call them uh, when I used to tell this story to students. But Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they're the first uh, two kings of the separate kingdom. 
The northern kingdom consists of ten tribes uh, of the twelve, and it's sometimes called Israel, just to make it confusing, so when you put them together, they're also called Israel, but it's sometimes called Israel, or Ephraim, or sometimes Samaria after the capital. The southern kingdom consists of just Judah and Benjamin, and that's just usually called Judah, even though it includes Benjamin as well. Now, although Jeroboam had sanction from God to set up the northern kingdom, he is not a good king. Like David is the gold standard for kings, Jeroboam becomes the sort of wooden spoon standard for evil uh, as you go through. He is the one that they're compared to all the time. He falls into the sin of Jeroboam. And Jeroboam sets the northern kingdom on a path of idolatry that it never recovers from. He sets up golden calves, which is what we have mentioned in our passage. And he tells the people that they were the gods who brought them out of Egypt. Which you should bring a bell from Exodus, because that's what they're told there at the Golden Calf incident. It didn't end well then, and it doesn't end well now. He gives them two, one in Dan, right up in the north, and uh, one in Bethel, uh, right down in the south. So Bethel, from this point on, becomes a centre for idolatry and a thorn in the side uh, of Israel. I mean, who would name their church after a place uh, like that, if you don't know what it used to be called Bethel? Um, but this is uh, all um, taking place. It's all taking place to keep them away from the temple in Jerusalem. Jeroboam knows that if they need to go down to Jerusalem for all their festivals, if they're linked with Jerusalem, then there's a possibility that they'll go back to being part of the southern kingdom. So instead, he sets up a sort of rival religion, Rival centres to Jerusalem, a rival Passover festival too. And the people now have no need to go to Jerusalem. But God had commanded them, of course, to go to Jerusalem. But Jeroboam's dynasty doesn't last very long. Oh, you can't read that very well, can you? Uh, it doesn't last very long. Actually, it's only his son that follows after him. And all the way through, all those gaps that you can see are breaks in the different uh, dynasties that we have. Uh, with the northern kingdom. And all the ones that have been read that you can't see very well, they're all ones that meet a nasty end. Uh, they're ones that oh, generally by their successor or someone linked uh, to that. Some standout ones here are Ahab, famous for being their worst king, married to Jezebel, uh, and got people worshipping Baal. And then Jehu, uh, all the way up there, which is really down there, uh, who's famous for getting rid of Ahab. And his family. He's the closest they get to a good king. Actually, all the kings of Israel were told were bad. The closest we get is Jehu, who still carries on with all the idolatry. He just gets them back to the golden calves instead of the Baals. Uh, but he does at least kill Ahab and his family. Uh, but that's as good as it gets for the northern kingdom. It's a real uh, mess uh, all the way through. The southern kingdom fares a bit better. Here are the kings of the southern kingdom. So again, it sort of follows on from the bottom uh, back up to the top. And again, I put in red the ones that meet and that's the end. And actually, compared with uh, the northern kingdom, it's not really so bad. Um, not as many of them die in nasty circumstances. The closest you get is Athaliah, who murders most of the royal family to take the throne herself. But she, Athaliah, is not actually a descendant uh, of David. She's actually a descendant of Ahab from the northern kingdom. She's his daughter. So actually this is just Israel, Israel's kingdom's problems infecting uh, Judah in the south. Some standout kings from the kings of Judah are Hezekiah and Josiah. They break down the high places, they fight idolatry in the country, they get the temple back working, they rediscover the law. 
But even then, it's actually shocking how quickly the nation turns around and returns to its old ways uh, once those kings are dead. The nation are a bit like a rubber band, you can sort of stretch them out, but as soon as you let go, it comes back. Or in biblical imagery, it's like a dog returning uh, to its vomit. So the northern kingdom doesn't do very well. It ends with Mashiach, who's carried off by the Assyrians. And uh, with uh, the southern kingdom, they, get, they last a little bit longer in history, but eventually get taken off by the Babylonians. But it's not just kings, there are also prophets uh, in wooden two kings. The main ones that feature are Elijah and Elisha, but there are more than you think. I was surprised actually when I looked into this. There's Ahijah, there's Huldah, there's Jehu, there's Micaiah, there's Shemaiah, Jonah and Isaiah appear in the story too, and there are five other prophets who are not given a name. So this really, as well as being the time of kings, is really the time of the prophets. And many of the books of the prophets fit into the story in one and two kings. The prophets are like covenant enforcers who call the people back to God and call the people back to the covenant. God raises up Elijah as the main sort of prophet at the low point of the northern kingdom. That's the time when King Ahab and his wife lead the nation into terrible idolatry. God raises up Elijah to turn the people back. And Elijah functions as God's prophetic voice, bringing the people back to him, culminating in a great contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They both fall down fire on a sacrifice, but it's the Lord who answers. And the people respond, and the prophets of Baal are slain. Elijah, bizarrely, yet realistically, when we think about ourselves, uh, runs away at this point in despair, worrying that he's the only one that's around, and that Jezebel and Ahab will take his life. God appears to him while he's hidden in a cave, in a repeat of God, what God does with Moses, and appears to him in a special way. But this time, there's no declaration of his name. So when God appears to Moses, the other prophet, uh, he declares his name, doesn't he? The Lord, the Lord, uh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But when God appears to Elijah, there's just silence. There's still a small voice that it mentions, or, or low whisper as it says in the ESV. The word still there is actually the word for silent. So the New American Standard Bible, one of the most literal translations, has it as a sound of a gentle blowing. Or the New Revised Standard Version has it as a sound of sheer silence. There are no words at this point. It's not a voice. What God is saying there is that he's already declared his name to Moses in the parallel experience. There's nothing more to say. He's pulling them back to where they were before. It's not a new revelation of God. It's just pointing back to what has already happened. Well, after this, Elijah appoints his successor, Elisha. And if Elijah is like Moses, then Elisha is like Joshua. The names actually even mean the same thing. The Lord saves and God saves. <coughs> Elijah, uh, after this, is taken away to heaven in a whirlwind, not a chariot of fire. That's a common um, mistake that people don't read for yourselves. It's a whirlwind. Um, and Elisha carries on what Elijah started. He does many miracles too that are repeated or expanded upon by the Lord Jesus, whose name also means the same thing, the Lord saves. Elisha feeds a large number of people with just a few loaves. He heals lepers, he even raises the dead. Personally, this whole Jesus, Elisha, Joshua thing has intrigued me as I've been sort of reading about it this week. I want to go away and think about it some more uh, as time goes on. I'm hoping that you guys are doing this too, sort of thinking, oh yeah, I'd like to go back and, and think about that a bit more as we do these flyovers in the books. 
But both Elijah and Elisha act as God's agent and God's voice, calling the people back to God and back to his covenant. And uh, quite a bit of the book of Kings is actually about these prophets. But one of the big things that we don't get in the stories of the individuals is really where the book is leading. So finally, outcomes. The northern kingdom, with all its bad kings, goes down and down and down and down. It finishes with Israel going into exile to Assyria and never coming back. This does have implications about how we read biblical prophecy. There are prophecies made about the northern kingdom being reunited with the south, of God having just one nation. How do we read that in the light of the fact that they didn't come back? It's worth saying though as well, they didn't migrate to America, as Mormons would have us believe. Nor did they become the ancestors of Europeans, as some strange groups would have us believe. The Saxons are not Isaac's sons, nor are the Danish really Danish. That's not how it works. What happens is really they're fulfilled in Christ. That's what we know what happens with prophecy in the Bible. As the nations come into the fold. But we'll come to that when we come to the prophecies themselves. This just sets up the problem, really. But the northern kingdom, Israel, in one or two kings, helps us see that while the judges pointed to their need of a king, any old king is not really a solution. Actually, we need a king in the line of David. That's partly what we see there. Instead of helping the nation, the kings that weren't of the line of David obliterated the nation. They're no longer a people. It went so wrong. Bad kings, bad outcomes. That's what we see really with the northern kingdom. But the southern kingdom shows us that even with a king in the line of David, that's not a guarantee of a good outcome. In the southern kingdom, some of the kings are bad kings, beset by sin, who lead the nation into sin. Some kings are good kings, but none of them do entirely what they should do. And even when they help the nation, they eventually die, and their children rarely do such a good job. It sort of goes from one end, uh, one swing of the pendulum to the other. In the end, Judah too goes into exile in Babylon. But whereas the northern kingdom never returns, Judah does. Seventy years later, the people return. But that part of the story is not included in the book. The closing chapter of the book actually has rather gory stuff going on. So the children might want, you might want to, you know, put your fingers in your ears. But uh, it has King Zedekiah, who's the final king, uh, being slaughtered by the Babylonians. Uh, sorry, Zedekiah's children being slaughtered by the Babylonians in front of Zedekiah's eyes, and then putting out Zedekiah's eyes so that that was the last thing that he see. He's never going to see anything again. Okay, you can take your, take your hands off your ears now. We're okay. Okay? But uh, we also see that the temple that was so carefully prepared at the beginning of the book under Solomon is burnt down, along with the king's palaces and along with the other great houses in Jerusalem. All the items from inside the temple that Solomon had prepared, and, and you read all about the beginning, are all taken away at the end and off to Babylon. All that are left in the land are a few poor people, and that's really to make sure that the farmland stays serviceable. That's all they're there for, to make sure the weeds don't grow too hard. Some of them are attacked, and then quite a chunk of them run off to Egypt, uh, we read in the last chapter. So we've sort of come a full circle, they're actually going back to Egypt for protection. That's what's going on. The only note of hope is that King Jehoiachin, who had been carried off to Babylon earlier on than Zedekiah, is still alive at the end of the book. The king of Babylon even seems to favour him and sort of sets him free to help him rule. 
And the last few verses of the, the two kings actually sound a bit like Acts at the end where Paul is able to uh, be a witness even though he's in prison. Jehoiachin is in Babylon but he's still alive. The line of David has not ended. Hope still remains. So one and two kings show us the problem. We need that son of David that the prophet Nathan talked about in 2 Samuel 7. We need a good king who reigns forever. The son of David who has God as his father. Without him, however good the king, the people fall apart and can't keep the covenant. Even with the prophets and the best of the prophets pointing them in the right direction. But from the ashes of one and two kings, that son of David does arise. Jehoiachin, who we mentioned, is also called Jeconiah. And he appears in Matthew's genealogy uh, in Matthew 1. Uh, sorry, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. Jesus is not a physical descendant of him. We'll see why when we look in Jeremiah. But through adoption by Joseph, he is his ancestor. The line of David still holds in that sense. We also, though, need a prophet to call us back. That's what the book points us to. But we lack one. Even the best of the bunch, like Elijah and Elisha, don't last forever. And even they have their wobbles, like Elijah, when he runs away. We need someone consistent to call us back to our covenant. We need someone whose words are God's words. But those, uh, these things that don't arrive in 1 and 2 Kings. 1 and 2 Kings don't provide a solution, they only provide the problem. They just show us that generation after generation of kings didn't do it. And in the end, it just ends in exile. For the solution, we're going to need to delve into one or two chronicles and the prophets. But that is not for the 20 minutes that we've had now. But for now, we can thank God that we do know the solution, don't we? We know who's coming, the Lord Jesus, who is our prophet, priest, and king. Who never fails, who never wobbles, and who reigns eternal in the heavens. And he's got the right name. He's not just king, he's king of kings. And uh, we need to follow him and serve him. So let's pray that God would help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that even the best of the kings in one and two kings are nowhere close to how amazing our Lord Jesus is. Father, thank you that he was not only our king, but our prophet too, who points us back to you. So Father, help us to listen to him as he speaks. Father, help us to live under his rule and enjoy the blessing and the good outcome that that brings of eternity with you. And we thank you for him in his name. Amen. Amen.